CoinWorld Plus is your new way to collect, manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinWorld Plus at CoinWorldPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store. Welcome to the CoinWorld Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. And as I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. It is a special treat this episode of the Coin World Podcast. Uh, we are pleased to have Dan Sedgwick on to represent the auction firm Daniel Frank Sedgwick. As usual, I'm Jeff Stark. And I'm Larry Jewett, and I'm really excited about this one because I had the opportunity to meet Dan in January and talk about some of the things that he had at his display at the fun show, especially that ingot. Oh my goodness, that was something to see. That was a conversation starter no matter where you were, but there was a lot of great selection of items, even uh, some U.S. stuff that I kind of got interested in. So it was great to reconnect with him, and certainly we hope that you enjoy what he has to say about what's going on in the world of shipwrecks and uh, some of the activities coming up here. But uh, speaking of activities, you know, we're just probably uh, right about now touching down in Schaumburg, Illinois for the Central States Numismatic Society. And we're going to be taking a podcast on the road. So if you happen to be coming to Schaumburg, Illinois, and you're going to be stopping by the Coin World booth, say hi to us. And maybe if you've got a story to tell, we might be able to get you uh, into this space right here. No charge, by the way. They charge us to do this, but you don't have to. You don't have to pay for us. But uh, speaking of uh, stopping by, stop by the Coin World Plus booth because uh, they've been helping us out here, and we do appreciate everything that they do for us. And uh, we uh, had some interesting information with Jake last episode. We hope you caught that one. You can catch that still at CoinWorld.com and uh, several other places where you get the podcast. But I have successfully talked for one minute and eight seconds now, Jeff. It's your turn. Hey, so one of the things that you'll hear with Dan, uh, not I mean, Dan's just such a genuine, nice guy uh, and super knowledgeable, and, and he's done a lot of hard work, and, and the company's done a lot of hard work in serving this niche market, which has really, I think, exploded over the years. And uh, so it's something that even if, if you're interested in U.S. coins and you don't know too much about you uh world coins and you know it's not your thing just just hold on because you're you're still gonna want to hear it the romance the allure the seduction pay attention to that word <laughs> of shipwrecks and the things that can be harvested from them the challenges the stories of that is really it has universal appeal it's one of the things that i love covering in this job, you know, it's every month, every week, you know, I'm writing about a new coin coming out or in an auction or whatever, but you know, it's fun to specifically, you know, if you ask some of my favorite areas and I would say, you know, shipwreck stuff uh, is, is one of those that is a favorite area. So, and, and it's actually interesting that um, we, we chose 2007 as the this week in coin world history because that was the year that Dan started his auction firm right mm -hmm. and we went to the 
April 23rd issue. And in Coin World that week, there was a story that I wrote on the front page that didn't happen often, doesn't happen often now. Uh, but it was, uh, it has some resonance today because I was talking about the Canadian Royal Canadian Mint Vancouver Olympic coin program. Uh, the Vancouver hosted the games in 2010 and in 2007, 2007, they started selling coins for the games and uh, they, they did this massive program for it. And the problem was, if you were in the United States, if you were not in Canada, but specifically if you were in the United States, you could not buy any of these coins right then because of the licensing strictures. And this is something that still happens today. Uh, you know, you think about the all the different Olympics that have come and gone since then. Um, there's been a handful of firms that have vied for the rights to sell Olympic coins. And how do they do that? Where do they do that? Well, they have to get the United States Olympic Committee's approval for it. And, you know, it's a like everything with the Olympics, there's there's dollar signs attached. And so that has been a complicating factor. And we've seen that for the new issues market in general really shift that direction over the last 15 years. There's so many licensed coins uh, that have come out. And, you know, that licensing is is a way to build on a famous brand, but it adds a cost to the coins. And so, you know, it's it's something about which to be aware. Right. And there's some like the Perth Mint, they might they might have a a contract with a specific distributor for a specific version of a coin. Now, I'm just speaking in generalities. I'm not saying that this is an exact breakdown of, okay, you know, the five ounce gold version is only available this way or it exists, but they, you know, they might do a one ounce silver version that they sell or they sell through their distributors, the, the whole suite of distributors. And then one distributor might say, I want a hundred five ounce gold coins and only I can sell them. And they'll agree to do that. Cause Hey, they just sold 500 ounces of gold and you know, Maybe there's a, a two ounce reverse proof colorized or, you know, there's all these iterations of the stuff and trying to understand that, keep track of that is, <laughs> can be really confusing sometimes. And, you know, in many respects, some of the uh, distributors, they don't want people to know that they have the exclusive or that um, they're the company behind the issue. So it, it's really Seeing that story in the issue, I thought, uh, you know, had some resonance for the way the market operates today. It's even more so like it was beginning to be that way 15 years ago. So that's what jumped out to me in the issue anyway, in looking at uh, this week in Coin World History. Well, just going back 15 years on that, and uh, pretty noticeable too, as we, we go into the letters, and we were talking last week, Chris and I were talking some about uh, the cover story from the 1981 issue that we were looking at, and it had to do with the uh, alloy of the scent, and it also at one point made mention of trying to 
eliminate the scent. And uh, here we are now in 2007. The scent is still very much uh, a part of it. And we've got some letters that are related to the scent. One of them says, repulsive idea. And it starts off, um, and it's from a 13-year-old letter writer who admits to his age here. And in fact, he has sent several letters to Coin World right about that era. says, there have been many opinions expressed concerning the future of the cent and the nickel. I'm only 13, but I have some opinions of my own on the matter. To me, the thought of eliminating either coin from circulation is repulsive. Being a numismatist for nearly three years, removing one or even two denominations of coins from circulation is naturally unattractive since I actually collect coins. True, there are special collectibles offered by the U.S. Mint, but it's somewhat hard for us of the younger generation to find the money to purchase these items. Furthermore, I would imagine that having to round cents would be a constant annoyance. As for the increasing metal prices, there are more options of how this can be dealt with than I can name here. Let's not needlessly throw away what we all make a hobby of collecting. And that's from Ryan Putman out of Carlisle, Ohio. Meanwhile, we go on and there's yet another letter. This one a little bit lengthier. Starts out sets only. And it talks about reading a D. Wayne Johnson guest commentary article in the March 26th edition of Coin World, that says, and being a coin collector for more than 55 years, I'd like to comment. The scent has been with us since 1793, albeit in different sizes and different compositions. Billions of them are now minted every year. Now, where do you find them? A few are in your pocket or change purse, but most are in drawers, jars, cans, banks, or other containers. And a lot of them are in pools or water fountains at shopping malls, zoos, and restaurants because people are using aquatic places as wishing wells. The government now says it's losing money on the cent and the five-cent coin because of escalating metal prices. Some in the government have recommended the discontinuance of minting them. If this happens, collectors like Mr. Johnson, young numismatists, and me will have our collections end. The uncirculated mint and proof sets would get smaller. But there is a solution. The mint now produces the half dollar mainly for mint and proof sets. When was the last time you used or received the half dollar in making change? So why not put the cent and the five cent coin in the same position? I'm sure the mint can cover the cost of these two coins with the current prices of mint and proof sets, that doesn't even factor into the seniorage from the 10 to 20 coin or 20 coins contained in the sets. Revaluing those coins to 10 cents would create havoc and a 900% profit on the increased value of the cent would not be accepted by the government. If we get rid of the cent and the 5 cent coin, what's next? The half dollar, the dollar bill or maybe the dollar coin? That's from David Flood of Seymour, Connecticut. Then I'm going to go one final letter here because we talked earlier about that first letter talking about prices and uh, different uh, aspects of that. And it says, this one's called No Courtesy. It says, on March 2nd, I sent six coin dealers a letter requesting a price quote on four Roosevelt dimes and four Jefferson five-cent coins, along with a stamped self-addressed envelope. I received one reply out of the six requests. I know we small collectors may someday upgrade our status from nickels and dimes, hopefully 
but I will never buy a coin from the five who did not even have the courtesy to respond. The eight coins in CoinWorld's coin values are listed at $279, which is a considerable sum of money for U.S. nickel dimers. I will go to a coin show in my area and purchase them. With these eight coins, both sets will then be complete with all P, D, and S coins, special mint set pieces, and some error coins. And that was from Gene M. Bird of Florida. And, yeah, unfortunately, it's one of those deals. But, uh, you know, way to go for the one uh, person who did respond. The rest of them, uh, they may have lost a little business on that side of it. But, uh, you know, here again, it comes down to the fact that this dealer, uh, I mean, this collector was trying to improve upon his sets here and doesn't have a whole lot of money to spend from the the take of it all, but was willing to spend that money. And uh, so... He turned to the letters page of the April 23rd edition of Coin World in the year 2007 to make his displeasure known. I don't know if any of those businesses uh, went out of business because they didn't get that business. But the idea is, uh, you know, sometimes customer service has a lot to do with it. So there you have it. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> great, re- great reading from 15 years ago. I, and I'm I'm actually looking elsewhere in that issue to discover the week that was uh that's the column that uh was written by fred reed for several years uh that's from whence we get this week in numismatic history and i found something with a central states connection and a st louis connection so um i had to choose that this was uh, on April 26th, 1957, that was the day that Eric Newman, a name uh, well familiar to the student of the American hobby, uh, Eric Newman displayed his Confederate half dollar, then one of two known, at the Central States Numismatic Society Convention, where in St. Louis, his hometown and mine as well. That would have been a trip to see, not only uh, because that was some 22 years before I was born, uh, but, you know, Confederate half has occupied such a place in the hobby. Uh, it's really interesting in looking at the various, uh, this the week that was columns, there is a lot of history related to Confederate numismatics uh, in April and, and specifically these this handful of days around that day uh, in history. Another one, for instance, April 27th, the next day, but in 1862 was when Union vessels seized the cargo ship Bermuda uh, that contained Confederate States watermarked paper uh, intended for their paper money. So, um, you know, it's just very, very interesting that, um, you know, all the stars would align, the the Confederate stars would align as it were in that way. Uh, but those, those are the things that jumped out to me for this week in numismatic history. And Hey, you know, we're, we're talking about the central state show. Can't, get a neater connection than Eric Newman and Confederate half dollar um, because of its rarity and all that. And see that uh, dovetails with what we talked about last week. In fact, the, uh, the items we selected last week from Fred Reed's column had to deal with the, uh, with the civil war, with the fact that uh, just right after Fort Sumter, that the Confederate forces seized the uh, mint at Charlotte we also had the reporting that in uh, that 
April of 1861 that uh, the final director of the Dahlonega Mint resigned his position. And we had one item from 1862 where the uh, U.S. troops uh, went back and got the New Orleans Mint back into their control. So, I mean, a lot, there is so much that happened in the month of April that it's not even funny. I mean, just there's so many things going on in April. It's almost a shame to see the, the month go away because now we'll be talking about May next week. We've got another great guest in store for you next week on the podcast. And we hope that you're listening for that one as well as uh, we, we continue on with what we're doing here. But well, you know, that those are some great items there from page 62 of that particular issue, the April 23rd, 2007 issue. But I don't know now. I mean, it's kind of unfair to you since Chris and I were the ones who did this. We made you have to listen so that you would have an idea of what our trivia question answer is going to be. But, you know, you have enough experience in this game that you can probably deduce the answer based simply on the question. And I'm going to put you to the test right here. Okay. Because then I'm going to let you ask a question that I'm going to make Chris answer. But, you know, I'm going to go ahead and get into our question from last week. We were talking about uh, some different things that were going on and and different dates in the month of April. And uh, one of the things I came across was the founding of a prominent numismatic organization that happened on April 23rd of 1939. This organization continues to be a force in the hobby itself. And uh, so, you know, we know that some organizations are older than that and some organizations are younger than that, perhaps. But would you happen to have any idea what organization can call April 23rd, 1939, its birthday? I I just have to think the only thing that comes to mind that as an organization that existed then and exist now would be the coin dealership based in New York City that has a name that could be confused with mine. In fact, some people have said, uh, asked me early on, are you related to so-and-so? I said, no, 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 mine has an R, not, you know, theirs does not. So I am, of course, thinking of Stacks. Is that an organization by definition? I mean, it's a company. It's okay. a co- companies or organizations. I, you know, the only other thing that I can think of, since you know that that suggests to me you want me to go in a different direction, is the Central States Numismatic Society itself. And there you have it. <laughs> okay. Wow. Thank goodness I didn't go with stacks <laughs> as my final answer because it's like, oh yeah. With all due respect to stacks, the intent of that question was simply because it was noted in the column that on April 23rd, 1939, the Central States Numismatic Society was founded. And of course they are coming up on the convention, which is probably right about now opening up on the 28th of uh, April and running until the a weekend, 30th, yep. So three exciting days on that one. I know we're looking forward to it uh, taking place right there and another opportunity for us to shamelessly promote the fact that you and I are going to be there and uh, we are going to be taking some time to spend some time at the Coin World booth. Also going to be uh, circulating the floor, also going to be spending some time that we still haven't worked out the details on. I'm recording the podcast, but we'll get there. So we're going like, to have a busy show. And if you happen to be there, I know we have like certain uh, certain listeners from Tinley Park 
that may actually show up there. So uh, it'd just be interesting to see if you could make it over to Schaumburg and join us for the Central States Numismatic Society. So congratulations to you. Now let's uh, reverse the roles a little bit and let you be the person who asked the question this time so that I can go, okay, Chris, answer this. Yeah. So I got to thinking uh, when we spoke with Dan, because he mentions, you know, Dan's in Winter Park, Florida, and he mentioned his father and the Rollins College connection. You know, that reminded me of something I wrote 12 years ago. And there is a connection to the hobby. There is a I don't. I, how do I dance around this delicately and not give it away? There is there is a connection to Rollins College and the numismatic hobby, and I'm curious if you know the connection, if you understand the connection. You know, if I say the connection, you might be able to identify the item that relates to Rollins College that some people in the hobby are definitely aware of. Maybe, how about this? There is a U.S. coin that has a connection to Rollins College. What coin is it and what is the connection? So it's going to be, it's a tough one. I, I admit, I mean, when I was able to work on this story, there was a lot of original research uh, that I got to do and talking to a lot of uh, sources. And and it, it was it was a really quite an effort over the course of weeks as I just, you know, nibbled at the story here and there. Yeah. So without, I, I don't want to say too much because I don't want to give it away to the listeners out there who play along at home. You know, you have a week to, to think about it. Uh, definitely listen to the podcast, uh, the, the interview here with Dan. I don't think he touches upon it, but um, since this is a U.S. coin, but um Give it a go. We had a great time. As I've said, Dan's a great guy, and we enjoyed our time uh, speaking to him. Here is our interview. The Coin World Podcast is delighted today to be joined by Dan Sedgwick, who is the president of the auction firm and coin house, Daniel Frank Sedgwick. Thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. We're really excited, actually, because uh, one of the cool things – uh, about your company is how you've uh, really transformed this over the last 10 years. You have a specialization, I think, in an area that a lot of people are interested in. Uh, you know, you come to this, uh, honestly, you're uh, at least a second generation coin dealer. Is that right? Just a second generation. Yes. Just okay. <laughs> well, but that, that's not to diminish your, your dad's involvement. Can you talk about um, growing up in the hobby and how you came to it and, and sure. when, you know, when you came to make this your, your uh, living and career? Sure. I'll give you the uh, short version. <laughs> Basically, my father and I were both collectors. Uh, I was a kid. I was about uh, 10 years old. And he was obviously uh, later in life. He was uh, um, toward the end of his career as a college professor. And one of his other roles was to take students overseas as he was the uh, director of overseas programs for uh, the local college, Rollins College here. And that brought him to various uh, countries that spoke Spanish because that's what he taught. Uh, one of them was Colombia. And he really fell in love with Colombia and specifically uh, Colombian coins. He made friends with a lot of the current dealers and movers and shakers down in Colombia, and 
uh, before very long at all, he assembled what was uh, one of the best collections at, in its time of uh, Republican Colombian gold coins. And as I say, at that time, I was a youngster, um, but at the right age that you find that uh, kids uh, will get interested in things like coins. And uh, he really had no other way to share his hobby or, or uh, share time with me except by his hobby. And, and uh, I enjoyed it too. Uh, I remember my first ANA show was in 1979, and I remember I bought my first coin from Lewis Hudson. Um, huh. It's funny, a lot of the other uh, dealers that I could mention that I bought from back then are, are either still around or still involved. Uh, it's really kind of amazing how uh, the field is like that. But I collected Colombian half dollars, and my father collected the gold coins. We sold his uh, collection uh, fairly early on in my auction career, which I started in 2007, uh, after uh, working both with my father and then independently after his death in 1996. We uh, worked together up, up until that point, but uh, then uh, after a few years on my own, I realized that it was getting harder and harder to come across new material to sell. And that's when I figured out that uh, the auction business was the way to go. I uh, had an opportunity actually to purchase an auction business that was existing, uh, that was specialized in Mexican coins. And by degrees, I realized that uh, it really didn't make any sense for me to uh, buy up something just because it was existing. It would make more sense to pioneer my own business in in treasure coins and cobs and early Spanish colonial material. And uh, that's what I did and really haven't looked back. It's just grown by degrees every year. And now it's, we've kind of made a market specifically for treasure coins. Oh, for sure. I mean, that's, you know, when anybody asks about, you know, where to find shipwreck coins, that kind of thing, you know, your firm is naturally the name that comes to mind. You mentioned Cobbs. Your dad was the initial author of the practical book of Cobbs. And then I think you've been at the helm for, later editions. Uh, can you talk about your involvement in that and where that stands? Sure. And I'll, I'll start with where it started. Um, as I say, he was into yeah, Republican gold coins from Colombia, but at the same time, he was into general Latin American, including colonial issues. Uh, he was a dealer. He had uh, quit teaching and started uh, dealing in coins full-time in 1981. And very soon he realized that there was a whole area of coins that nobody knew much about and nobody cared a lot about, and that was cobs. Uh, they're hand-struck coins, so they're uh, not standard in any way and, and uh, somewhat difficult if you don't know them. And because of his academic background, uh, it was natural for him to create a uh, textbook, if, if you will, uh, specifically for these coins. And it just happened to be perfect timing because when he came out with the at least the idea or the prototype for that book, it was right when Mel Fisher found the mother load of the Atocha. So these coins were having their day in the sun at exactly the same time that my father wrote the book about them. And that really kind of made him and then me uh, the go-to for such coins. He did the first edition on his own. The second edition, I helped to edit. Uh, the third edition, uh, we co-authored, and then the fourth edition I published by myself, but still with his name. Uh, and that fourth edition is uh, actually getting old now. It, it was in 2007. I am currently working on a, a very long project, but uh, something that's a more exhaustive uh, treatment of the subject, Mint My Mint, 
basically all dates and varieties, whereas the practical book of Cobbs is just that, just a, a more of a, a handbook overview type thing. But it's been very popular. Over the years, we've sold over the four editions, I think we've probably sold uh, 30, 40,000 copies. Wow. That, that's a really good number for a book in general, but especially for a numismatic book. Yeah, and, and something spo- so specialized. But you have to consider its appeal for treasure people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're used to kind of small numbers in, in the coin business, but anytime you get into something that has general appeal to the public at large, uh, the numbers jump up very quickly. And I would think the public at large in this case is worldwide, too, because of the, uh, the great attraction of this particular subject. That's correct. And if you think about it, shipwrecks can be anywhere in the world, just about. I think another factor would be the, the sort of the scale and scope of the Spanish colonial empire and, you know, how influential that has been to world history. And, you know, we can look at, um, I'm sure you do. I, I certainly do, you know, look at auction catalogs from Europe and Asia and, you know, there's very much interest in and, and demand for the Spanish colonial types there just because they're markers of history. Well, and also you have to keep in mind that the Spanish colonial coinage coming out of uh, Mexico and uh, South America, that was the coin of the realm for the entire world in its time. Uh, this was silver that was in such great quantities and was needed all across the world that um, it, it was shipped around very quickly. And we will find cobs uh, that come from every corner of the earth, whether it's Africa or Asia uh, it's amazing how these these coins got around. Um, it really was a, a global economy, even though it's it's kind of hard to think of it that way. But it was based on on hard metal, uh, silver and gold. I want to talk about something that I think is important for uh, listeners to know or to you know really appreciate. You you mentioned working on a um, like a research project and all that. One of the things I think that defines your catalogs more than any other in the current market is the sort of scholarship that you present in the catalogs, uh, whether that's explaining the history of dozens of wrecks, big and small, whether it's exploring, you know, dive varieties and marriages and, and different things of, of types. You Scholarship often is a, a major part of all the, the catalogs. Can you talk about how that was uh, maybe a goal of the business or how it evolved to that and why that matters to help maybe um, inform people who are newer to the hobby or tentative about participating and dipping their toes in that area? Yeah, well, first of all, I appreciate your noticing. You know, it's uh, it's kind of funny. Yeah, I'm very critical in this business of, of the writing that I see without getting specific, but I, I come from a, an academic background uh, with my father and I, he would have cringed. Uh, he would cringe these days if he could see the, the kind of writing that's out there, but it, it's generally geared toward money and making money and flash. And even though I, I obviously have to cater to that as well, I just can't get out of my system a, a scholarly bent and part of it is because um, I, I know that that's what attracts me to something else. If I if my curiosity is piqued, 
if I am uh, led to think that there's more to the story than just something that has value in front of me, uh, monetary value, then that will that will give me legitimate interest in that piece. And and of course, our clients are are kind of a different clientele in that regard too. They appreciate that. Uh, I think that we still attract the investor types and the and the people who are in it to make money. Um, but I think that we pick up a lot more of the true collectors as a result. Uh, the people who appreciate the the actual stories, whether they are numismatic, as you say, die studies, or if they are general interest, like a, a shipwreck history or or just the history of a country. Uh, for me, it's like I say, it's a natural process. When I get a um, an item across my desk that I've not seen before, uh, I could very easily just go to something like Coin Archives and pick up an old description and be done with it. Uh, but more times than not, I will take it one step further. Uh, I will read other descriptions and then I'll ask myself, well, does that make sense? Uh, Does that tell the whole story or is there more to it? And uh, I can give you an example in this this current auction. There was I I won't give you the specific example, but there was one piece that had been widely acknowledged as something being um, kind of a a proclamation of uh, some place in in Germany uh, because it did have a new um, ruler's name on it. But then it had an older ruler's name on it, too. And I knew that there had to be more of a story and that it wasn't simply a, a proclamation for the new ruler. And as it turned out, it was a complicated thing where the uh, Holy Roman Emperor had died suddenly. And uh, uh, they there was actually somebody uh, named a vicar, or that was his title. He was the official vicar of the Holy Roman Empire. He also happened to be a ruler of his particular land in Germany. Uh, but uh, this was a, a coin issued in his name from that German uh, country, uh, but as the vicar for the Holy Roman Emperor. And obviously, this is something that I, I would not have known anything about until I spent the time to to learn it. And I think that anybody who looks at our catalog and, and thinks that's a neat looking coin, now they will have that additional interest because they, they can see the story. That's That's really what it's about. I watch jeopardy sometimes now and i go oh i know that and i and i go and i know that because it's on a coin or i read about it while i was looking the coin sure. up or whatever <laughs> oh, yeah. so coins I, are, you know coins are, are records of history it's this is and they last longer than any kind of paper records it, it, it's really an ingenious thing this is a family business and then some but uh you your um sister's involved as well or how do, how does that work yeah, that's correct. Um, you know, she came in late in life. Um, she was not involved with my father and, and me in the early form of the business, uh, but I needed her help when um, I started the auctions. And she got uh, deeply into Charles and Joanna, Mexican Charles and Joanna coinage, started collecting it and started studying it. And uh, we, the way it works here at the office is that she has a part-time job and, and does a part-time job, but spends the rest of what would be a part-time job doing research. And, and it's, uh, I'm jealous in a way that <laughs> that's, that would be a lot of fun for me, but, uh, um, you know, it's great to have her here and, and, uh, she is, uh, critical to the operation. Um, her work on uh, Charles and Joanna is, is greatly reflected in the current auction with the, the Clyde Hubbard coins that we have. Uh, she, I think that there can be no doubt that she has the most up-to-date die information for that type of coins. And um, it's it's such a a fascinating and and beautiful series that uh, I think that her work will be well-received. 
Well, that uh, provides a natural transition to talk about the current sale, which uh, May 4 to 6, I believe. And uh, this is your 31st, which you guys do about three a year. And, two, um, yes. two a year, two a year. Yes. Okay. I, I knew uh, May, November, I think. And uh, I was th- for some reason, I thought more than that. So anyway, well, you know, this year we, I will ha- I have to interject that this year we are going to do a third auction. Uh, okay. For the paper money only. If you look at our current auction, you'll notice there is no paper money in it. Uh, and that's because uh, we have figured that it would be good to do that as a standalone for a separate uh, kind of clientele. Uh, and that will be July 1st. Okay, very good. Duly duly noted. So, uh, you know, Clyde Hubbard is a name familiar to any student of the Mexican series. Can you talk about uh, what he collected, why he was important to that arena, and then maybe we can uh, explore some of the the highlights for, uh, that are coming up for sale now, and and maybe there's uh, another quiver in the arrow for later. You know, I don't know how, you know, if this is take. Sometimes these collections take time to disperse. So, oh sure, it, it, his collection is vast. Um, yes, it, it pretty much was all things Mexico. Um, so far, I'm really only privy to the uh, Charles and Joanna material, but that is uh, arguably the most important because uh, Clyde was a collector of that material since the at least the 1950s. And if you look at uh, the bookshelf for this type of material, the one and only book that, that ever uh, made good strides in, in uh, teaching these coins was uh, Robert Nesmith's book, about the Mexico City Mint, uh, specifically uh, the Charles and Joanna coinage from 1536 to 1572. And as it turns out, if you look through the book, you will see it was published by the ANS in 1955, by the way. And throughout the book, there's a lot of reference to Clyde Hubbard. A lot of uh, photos and drawings are referenced as the Clyde Hubbard collection. And what was interesting about this consignment is that it came to us not just as coins, but also as all of the correspondence between Clyde Hubbard and Robert Nesmith. And it's fascinating. It turns out they were they were got to be good friends. It was just a, a random uh, acquaintance that they made. Uh, and of course, they um, they saw eye to eye on this particular type of coinage. Uh, Robert Nesmith had the the talent and the wherewithal to put together the the photo, um, all the photos that you see and, and do all that work, uh, the cataloging work. But uh, Clyde had the coins. He was in Mexico City and he had the or actually Cuernavaca, but uh, he was in Mexico and he had access to uh, tons of different hordes um, and he bought up just about everything. So. Uh, by doing that, he was able to, and by working with Robert Nesmith, he was able to come up with as complete as possible uh, a collection of all the different, not only assayers, but also varieties of all the different denominations, mostly in the small denominations. Um, there are some holes. Uh, there are some things in the early series, um, which is the early type that did not have waves below the pillars. Uh, there are some things missing because they really are just that rare. And then in some of the larger coins, there may be uh, a few holes in varieties because uh, the larger coins are, were not the kind of thing that you would find in local hordes. Those actually ended up on shipwrecks instead. Uh, so we've actually had more uh, a greater breadth of uh, varieties in the in the four realist denominations. And then, of course, what he didn't even know to exist until the very end, uh, the eight realis, um, because of shipwrecks, we've been able to handle those. But those... Uh, those aren't quite as prominent in his collection, but the the smaller coins, the half uh, one and two reales, 
it's an unparalleled collection, especially the half rails. Uh, we made a, a boast in our catalog, and I, I, I think that nobody can challenge that this is the best offering of um, Charles and Joanna half rails that there's ever been. Clyde himself was really a luminary, numismatic luminary for his whole collecting life. Uh, he founded the uh, Sociedad Numismatica de Mexico, I believe it was, um, in the 1950s. Uh, he was um, definitely a numismatic ambassador uh, with the United States all the time. Uh, he was a uh, co-author uh, of a, a few books. And then, of course, his, his work with Nesmith was, uh, um, you know, unparalleled. So um, definitely a, a, a very uh, important person in the field and um, also quite a gentleman. I had um, several occasions over my life to, to meet uh, Clyde and uh he was very soft-spoken, uh, but always a gentleman, very uh, gentle and, and enjoyable person. Um, I wish I could have visited him in, in Cuernavaca, but uh, I'm just glad that he was able to make it to the United States for a few A&A shows and, and so forth. So above all, I'm, I'm just uh, glad to be honoring his memory with, with uh, this offering of his coins. There definitely will be uh, more parts to this. There will be cobs as well. Uh, but the uh, what we have put together for this particular auction is what I would describe as the finest set of uh, major varieties based on Nesmith number. And we also took the step to uh, submit them all to NGC. Everyone is, is NGC graded. Um, and uh, because of that, you can tell that uh, many of them are, are finest, finest graded, top pop, basically. Um, so it'll be, uh, we're very excited to, to see what, uh, what the collection does. And as I say, uh, my sister wrote up the, uh, did the a masterful job on, on the uh, descriptions uh, using basically dye details, dye data that, that only she could have done because she's been studying it for so long. Anyway, we're very excited to see what happens. It's, um, uh, like I say, uh, an unprecedented collection of a, of a, a well-respected and, and important numismatic gentleman. Awesome. And we'll, we'll give credit to Corey Sedwick Downing uh, here for, for that uh, verbiage yes. and that research. How does one assign a, a presale estimate when, you know, this stuff is, you know, the offering is so rare and the, you know, I, I mean, does a collection like this dilute the market based on demand? I mean, what are some considerations from that side of things? You know, there's always some basis. You always have some uh, comparables from past auctions or, or past dealings. And I usually will start from something that, that makes sense to me from a, uh, a standpoint of things I've sold before. But from there is, is where it gets tricky because uh, for the most part, we put estimates on, on these coins and then we submitted them to NGC. And when a coin comes back, when you think it uh, is comparable to coins you've sold in the XFAU range and it comes back as MS-63, finest known, uh, the estimate goes up. But what I don't like to do is overestimate things because I think that the best thing an auction can do is let the bidders decide. Uh, and this is a case where we had carte blanche to put whatever estimates we thought were fair and from there, I believe that the market will respond favorably because they have free reign to put whatever price they want. Uh, I think that uh, the estimates are such that any dealer would pay those prices. And from there, it becomes a collector's game. Uh, and there are plenty of people out there who are uh, buying the finest knowns and putting together the, the best registry sets possible. 
uh, things like that. But at the end of the day, you have to consider also that these are, are very pretty coins. And if you have to, and I say if, you have to resort to non-numismatic means, uh, these are always coins that would be good for jewelry or just to have as, as a, a, a trophy coin. Plenty of people want to have them, even if they don't collect Mexican coins, they say, well, that's a nice looking coin. I just, I want to have that. Um, so it, there are a lot of, uh, I'm not too worried about flooding the market because there's always demand for, for nice looking material. As you mentioned, starting out the auctions in 2007, here we are in uh, 15 years later. Are you finding that there's more new buyers coming in that are interested in what you have to offer for this uh, the sale coming up here, your 31st sale? Yeah, for sure. Um, gosh, especially when the pandemic started, we started seeing more and more new bidders every auction. And uh, something we don't ever really know until later when we get to know the, the bidders and we've done some transactions, uh, a lot of times these are people who have been collecting for years, um, just collecting something different, you know, collecting U.S. coins predominantly or uh, some other part of the world. Uh, but the appeal for coins, especially these Charles and Joanna coins that look so nice, is very seductive. And, and when they see what they sell for, uh, these new people can't believe that they, they've been missing out on, on uh, what are bargains for all these years. But we do pick up some people that are just kind of off the street and never collected before. It is definitely on the rise, I would say. Not just the numbers of, of collectors, but the amounts that they're paying, too. If you think about it, uh, the market has come up so much. That if you were to take somebody from 1970, for example, and, and say, okay, what is this worth? I guarantee you he will have no idea or no concept at all of, of how much more things are worth now and on a relative basis. Yeah, you use the word seductive, and I think that's um, a good <laughs> descriptor uh, <laughs> for some of these uh, shipwreck coins because they do have a story that transcends you know, you're not going to be limited to somebody who's collecting the the coin of the country of issue or, you know, necessarily a dye variety specialist or whatever. What advice would you give to somebody who wants to delve into that but doesn't have the background and, you know, facility with uh, understanding the different options, uh, where to begin and, and what uh, options are for them? It's almost you talk about rising prices. Is it is it uh, too late to jump on the the wagon? Is it uh, how do you get started and uh, not get left behind? No, you know it's never too late. It's a matter of spending money, and and obviously some people have more than others. But I think something we've seen quite a bit during the pandemic is that people have more than they really let on. Uh, The people who do collect can certainly spend more money on the things they want. And one of the beauties of of auctions is that there is no limit. They can fight each other until one person wins. And then it's a new reality at that point. But when it comes to shipwreck stuff specifically, uh, I always tell people, well, any any coins, I guess, I tell people just collect what you like. Uh, I'm obviously more than willing to uh, give some advice and, and try to teach people what they would actually like. But at the same time, uh, you can't be taught that necessarily. You have to make that decision yourself. You have to, enjoyment of something and and, uh, being seduced by something is is a very personal thing. Um, And it can be the story or it can be the coin itself. Um, But in most cases, it's both. You know, when shipwreck coins come into play, 
I think generally speaking, people, uh, the, the general uh, public that's interested in shipwreck coins, they really are first interested in, in the history of it. And then they say, well, wouldn't it be cool to have a coin from that particular wreck? And then you have some other factors. Uh, timing is, is big. I, I think that uh, while any shipwreck coins are particularly hot right now, what, what is the, the highest on the list in this particular year uh, are coins from the Atocha and Santa Margarita. This is the, the Spanish 1622 fleet. Uh, this is the mm-hmm. 400th anniversary this year. And we have been seeing the coins from these uh, wrecks rising in price dramatically over the past several years. Not just coins either, uh, artifacts and uh, big ingots. We sell uh, rather large silver ingots from the Atocha. And, you know, there the question is, would definitely be relevant to ask, is it too late? I mean, have these gone too far? And again, I have to say, if you're a collector with uh, and you're independently wealthy and you can have anything you want and you're attracted to this, it doesn't matter what it costs. You just you buy it, you enjoy it. And that's basically what we're seeing now. People are doing that. Wow. Really cool. I, you know, you talked about we're drawn to different things. I, I love uh, the Potosi Cobb Foreal's heart. <laughs> Those hearts are always fun, but, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, the, the shipwreck stuff there, you know, the ingots, uh, I think Larry and I both had a chance to um, hold a, a giant ingot at the fun show. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's gotta be a, a good draw to just uh, stop people in their tracks and go, okay, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta take a look at this. Well, yeah, and I saw a uh, I, on the listing for the auctions. I was really attracted by uh, some of the later lots, uh, some of the uh, the artifacts, the belt buckles, and things like that. That just would be so cool to have. I mean, because they're just the history that goes along with it. To your point about shipwrecks and their history, yeah, the item came from that particular ship. Just imagine the allure of that. So, right, but, yeah, but there are some things that that have come into play in recent years with that as well. Some of the more mundane items, like you say, buckles and so forth, um, they are very uh, fun items to collect because they aren't unreasonable and, and they carry a lot more in history than than they do in artifact value. Uh, but the problem is that they, they touch more the concept of archaeological items, uh, things that are connected to actual humans that lost their lives on, on shipwrecks. And uh, for that reason, we try to limit the amount of material that we sell like that. Um, the, these days, there's a lot of talk about cultural property and, and uh, archaeological importance. And we don't ever really want to diminish that. And we don't want to fly in the face of that. But at the same time, we, we want to uh, preserve the memory by keeping the interest in these items alive. Uh, so I would say that we're, we're just very judicious about how we offer artifacts and uh, a uh, lot of the things that we sell in our auctions in terms of artifacts, whether it's a, a rosary or some type of gold chain, or uh, in this auction, what's fascinating is we have a, a gold ring that is engraved with the prayer of St. Zacharias inside, which, by the way, was a, uh, a prayer against uh, a plague, <laughs> very timely with the pandemic. <laughs> uh, but it was found on the beach in the 1715 fleet area. Uh, things like that. These are These are items that probably should be in museums. Uh, but I contend that 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 phrase is is a little bit uh, it doesn't gi- give you the full picture, which is that private collections are some of the best museums in the world. Um, so we're just kind of delighted to be able to touch these and and uh, move these and and uh, find good homes for them uh, because we know that's where the greatest appreciation will be. You mentioned the um, cultural property issues, uh, certainly. 
shipwrecks have been uh, no, there's been no shortage of legal issues, lawsuits and all that uh, over the disposition of the items. Uh, has that become uh, more challenging? Has, have things changed any, you know, I mean, I can remember being a kid and hearing about the Atocha and Mel Fisher in the eighties and there was legal wrangling then. Mm-hmm. Um, have all those issues been ironed out now with what's out there, or is there still, you know, some concerns that a, a collector needs to keep in mind? Well, no, the issues have not been ironed out. Really, this is it, it, everything has been kind of put in in stasis because the archaeological community fails to understand is that this is these are items that are only able to um, come to light if there is a commercial market and the big debate on cultural property has effectively broken the flow of, of material to the market. Now, nobody wants to create a black market, but at the same time, uh, if the treasure salvagers who do that for a living aren't going to get paid to go out and find material, they're not going to do it. So uh, we've done our part by making sure that we don't offer black market items, that we are not encouraging the wildcat diver. We are not promoting any kind of uh, trafficking in in looted material. Uh, But at the same time, we have clients who want this material. And so we we offer what's there. I remember a number of years ago when all this started happening, Rick Ponterio of Ponterio and Associates, uh, later obviously he's uh, with Stax Bowers Ponterio, uh, said to me, he said, uh, shipwrecks are dead. You know, he, he used to sell a lot of shipwreck, shipwreck material. I used to go religiously to his auctions in the 1990s, and he would always have a treasure coins section. Mm. Uh, but he told me shipwrecks are dead. And I said, well, that's fine. But there are still tons and tons of, of coins that, that you yourself sold over the years. They didn't go away. Nothing ever goes away. Uh, just because we don't have a good environment now for new salvage doesn't mean that the material that was uh, brought up years ago and, and found its homes and in, in collections, uh, you know, that, that stuff is still out there. And that's really where we make our market. And as far as anything new goes, uh, there are a few things grandfathered in. Yes, the, the Mel Fisher family fought the, the legal fight and, and did such a great job that uh, most of Florida is grandfathered in. And, and this is, uh, we see a lot of material, new material come up just from uh, the wrecks off Key West or the wrecks off the East Coast of Florida. Uh, and then there are a few other places in the world, but uh, generally speaking, it's it's just not like it was in, in the heydays of the 1970s and 80s when uh, uh, it was kind of a cool new thing to go out and, and dive on treasure ships. You know, now it's, uh, it's more of a, a hassle and even uh, some large scale things like the, uh, the efforts on deep water wrecks like SS Central America and so forth. It's only if you've really fought the battle ahead of time, if you have kind of pre-cleared everything with insurance companies or governments uh, that it's possible. And uh, at any time you run the risk that it, the, the plug could be pulled. And unfortunately, that's the, the precedent that we have now with uh, any kind of old Spanish wrecks that uh, uh, Spain has already demonstrated that if, if they're not in the loop from the beginning, then you will have trouble down the line. Yeah, it's unfortunate, you know, <laughs> the, the biggest uh, or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and now, the, you know, the biggest potentially the biggest Spanish shipwreck of all time is off uh, Cartagena, Colombia. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a deadlock between the Colombian government and Spain. And, and uh, I don't see that uh, getting resolved. 
good memory and reminder of that because I I covered that announcement when I think the president of uh, Columbia made it or whatever, and it was all on the the government uh, social media and all that, and and it's like you know we're waiting <laughs> we're waiting to know more, uh, and I guess um, it shows that there's more to be discovered. The question is when and how, uh, but there certainly is good demand for the material now. I just. I love the area, even though I don't. I own a few pieces that, uh, in full disclosure, I bought from you. It shows um, mm-hmm. just very common stuff uh, for the listener, but it's you know it, it's you can have fun learning about it, writing about it, or just looking at the catalog, even if you can't bid. Uh, and it's uh, and certainly there's other things in there, two uh, world coins, a few U.S. coins, uh, some jewelry, as as Larry noted, the artifacts. Uh, so it's there's definitely a lot of fun to be had and. And really amazing how you've really created this market and served this market uh, over the last uh, 15 years. So thank you so much for uh, talking to us today and, and sure. sharing a little bit of insight in that. Well, you can probably tell it's something I love to do. It's a lot of work like any business and uh, there are a lot of moving parts. But day to day, I just feel so privileged to have uh, such interesting pieces of history come through my hands. And uh, I just feel like sharing. So uh, I'm happy to do it. That was our interview with Dan Sedgwick of Daniel Frank Sedgwick, the auction firm. They're gearing up for auction 31, May 4 to 6. Uh, they are, of course, at the Central States show this weekend, giving a last look to potential bidders at their items and a reconnecting to, you know, maybe the, um, the hobbyist in the Chicago land area that, uh, you know, this, this is the first central States show in a couple years. So really, I guess since 2019 and, uh, Chris was at that show and, um, we're, we're all excited to be back and, and in, into the swing of things. And uh, we hope, you know, anybody listening here, you're going to be at the show. Be sure to drop by. Be sure to support CoinWorld Plus as well. As, as you've already said, we are excited and ready to be there. And certainly, yeah, it's uh, going to be a great time indeed and appreciate everything that uh, we've had the opportunity to get set up and the courtesies that uh, have been provided to you. Know, of course, we had Larry Shepard on uh, some time ago and Larry Shepard, the convention manager for this particular event. Uh, we're glad that uh, we finally get the opportunity to uh, back when we did that show, we were in anticipating it. And now here we are just uh, mere days away from making it a reality here. So, and it's going to be interesting too, as we had Greg Cohen, one of our guests on earlier, that also is where Regency 51 auction is going to be happening. So there is just so much happening that it just behooves you to be there and be a part of it. So we're glad that you are a part of our podcast here. We invite you to continue listening tell your friends, subscribe when you get the opportunity, drop us a line. Unlike the, uh, previous letter that we talked about where the individual sent out six uh, letters to dealers and only one replied. If you send us an email, Jeff definitely replies. So, I try. I, I yeah. admit, you know, there's, there's, there's some that I've, I've never gotten to. I just, the, the email just keeps flooding me and please extend all grace and courtesy. I, I will endeavor to do better. And, um, we, we appreciate those who reach out and listen and, um, by, any stretch don't want to have 
someone who's not received a response, not feel appreciated because I've been on the other end of it and know how that is. And, um, you know, it, it's almost, I don't want to say anxiety inducing, but you know, the, the, it, I'm standing at the bottom of the spillway with a bucket and there's, you know, it's, it's just a constant stream and I'm running back and forth and uh, my cup runneth over our cups runneth over. Um, and, uh, we do appreciate everyone here and, um, Hopefully we can say that in person at the Central State Show. Until next time, though. Happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Coin World Plus is your new way to collect. Manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinWorld Plus at CoinWorldPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store.